0: Welcome back to another episode of Supreme Myths. I have a very special guest today, Carissa Byrne Hessek, and I'm going to try to get this right. I may not, is the Anne Shea Ransdale and William Garland Buck Randell, sorry, Jr., distinguished professor of law at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. The key word in all that is distinguished, and and Carissa definitely is. Um, She went to Columbia College and then Yale Law School. She has taught at several other law schools. She's a prolific writer. Uh, her presence on Twitter, I think, is important, and we may get to that at the end. If, if, if. I think it's probably more important than she thinks it is, um, but we'll, we'll get to that at the end. Um, she's also the director of something called the uh, Prosecutors and Politics Project, which I want to get to also at some point, Carissa. but welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm flattered to be here and I do think that I have might have the, the longest title of a of a professor of anyone I've ever seen.
0: <laughs> I think Sandy Levinson does. I think Sandy Levinson is like the W. Garland Jr. something 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 and something Garland. But other than that, you're the second, I think. I think you are I think you are the <laughs> second. Um so I start these. I call it shows. You know, I never thought – I never in my wildest dreams ever thought I'd ever utter the words, welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Um, and I usually start with three myths about something law-related or not law-related. But in your case, I'd love to – you are a criminal law expert across the board. G- give us three myths about either criminal justice, criminal law, whatever you want. But three myths in that area. Ah, oh,
1: that's a fun question. <laughs> um- yeah, so, so three myths about the, the US criminal justice system. Um, one that, that I was really surprised by is, I think if you, if you ask most people who you know, haven't gone to law school, or maybe even many who have, they would say that criminal defendants have more procedural rights than defendants in a civil lawsuit. Um, but the way things play out, that's actually probably not true. Wow. Um, yeah, because so many cases settle. There's actually, you know, as I'm sure you know, right, a lot of process and sort of protection built into the pretrial process of civil litigation, um, and almost none in, um, in criminal cases. And so you end up with... Relatively sophisticated and informed bargaining in civil cases, and basically the opposite in many, many criminal cases. So there's one myth for you.
0: That's a great one. And we're going to get back to that one. Go ahead. Two more. Yeah,
1: totally. Um, A second one, I uh, I think if you asked most people, they would say that we have a justice system in order to arrive at truth and justice. Right? If we have a trial, it's because there's a, um, we care about what actually happened and there's a dispute about that. And, um, and again, because we have this, the settlement process that we have in criminal cases, the plea bargaining process and the sort of lack of protections that surround it, I'd say that that's not where we are. Like not only, not <laughs> only does the system not necessarily prioritize the seeking of truth, but, um, but there's some amazing research out there by a, a young law professor named Taya Johnson that actually shows that the parties and sometimes the judges will um, will basically lie <laughs> in order to resolve cases, and it's it's actually very formalized lying to resolve these wow. cases. So the truth-seeking function is not alive and well.
0: And it, those are the we'll two most depressing myths I've heard so far on this those podcast. Are so Go so ahead. <laughs>
1: The next one I hope isn't depressing. I hope it's just interesting. And that's that, um, you know, you see people a lot of times, especially right now with this presidential administration, say that it's inappropriate to allow politics to play a role in criminal prosecutions. Um, And they they say that sort of very definitively, um, both, you know, sort of as a descriptive matter, like politics have no place in prosecutions. And then also as a normative matter, like it would be inappropriate for them to have one. Um, and that's actually just,, um, I think that that might be an okay thing to say about the federal criminal justice system, but I think it's definitely wrong when it comes to state systems. The vast majority of state systems lean very heavily on um, on politics in order to run their criminal justice systems, right? A lot of a lot of judges are elected. Um, the vast majority of local prosecutors are elected. And, um, you know, maybe people are using the word politics to mean things I don't like (laughs) or partisanship. (laughs) Right, right. But I I think, you know, politics has a bigger meaning than that. And politics is actually incredibly important in the criminal justice system.
0: Those are awesome. The last one was... Also, a little depressing, but not quite as depressing as the first two. Let me ask you about plea bargaining, um, and and let me because that was your first myth, I think. And and let me start with just a teeny little quick story. I have a friend, very successful big firm partner, whose daughter always wanted to be a public defender. Like when she was ten, and she went to Harvard, and she had a choice of places to go. She went to New Orleans, and this was a a strong. You know, idealistic but realistic woman. I I knew her. Um, really an all-around great person and strong person. Two years there, and she got sick. I mean, she literally got sick mentally and physically because of what she saw. Um, she, and, and how she describes what she saw, I am reasonably sophisticated about these matters. I'm not a criminal justice. But I. I, I it, it even terrified me. Um So, with that caveat, I I don't know if New Orleans is singularly terrible. Maybe it is. How bad is this sleep bargaining world we live in? Because it it almost sent her, I mean, a strong, smart woman. It it reduced her to tears and hysteria.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty bad. New Orleans, you know, gets a lot of attention for being particularly bad. But I I don't think it's – I don't think we can say the problems are just in New Orleans. So, I've been – I've been working on a, a book about plea bargaining and it's a it's a book that's that's geared towards a general audience. It's not an academic press book. And so I've been I was traveling the country, now I'm just, you know, on yes. on Zoom conducting yes. interviews.
0: Yes, I know the feeling, <laughs> and, yes. <laughs> that's
1: right. Yeah. Um and the stories that you hear are, you know, on the one hand they're heartbreaking because they involve individuals, but they're also um they're outrageous and I mean that in terms of like inducing outrage like this just um it seems so wrong what we've done and yet that's the that's the system that we live in and I've actually you know I think it's it's kind of funny um I'm I'm one of the few criminal law professors who didn't practice criminal law before becoming a law professor I you know I clerked and I worked as a civil litigator but you know aside from a pro bono case Um, and a little bit of internal white-collar stuff. I I was civil litigation, Um, and I've noticed that when I read opinions by judges that really talk about the fundamental problems in the criminal justice system, those judges invariably didn't practice criminal law. They They weren't prosecutors. They weren't defense attorneys they were you know transactional lawyers or civil litigators and they step into the process and they say to themselves how can this be what we're doing it's just so far removed from what they've seen and from what they've been told we do
0: krista when you say this this is not what we should be doing can you just explore that with me a little bit what do you mean by this
1: yeah so i mean let me caveat this and say you know like with most things, culture matters, and so and a layer on top of that, you know, literal difference in laws from right. state to state. Yeah. Um, but putting that variation to one side, there is an overwhelming there has been an overwhelming shift in the criminal justice system that has resulted in um, in something that doesn't look like justice it doesn't look like doesn't look like law it looks like a free-for-all and um, and it's difficult to find analogies to what it is so so Daryl Brown has this great book um, called like free market criminal justice it came out a couple of years ago um, and he has a couple of really good theories in the book but the one thing that he does is he says um, plea bargaining has been sort of infected by free market ideology that there's this sense like oh well the defense and the prosecutor are bargaining and it's a contract and the courts should right. respect that and then he goes on to point out how absolutely
0: absurd <laughs> how that is,
1: that is. <laughs> yeah. it's like someone to be hyperbolic for a minute. it's like someone showing up at your house pulling a gun on you and then saying, "So, how much money do you think you should give me?" And then <laughs> saying, "Like, well, I mean, they they negotiated over how much money that's um, a great Aaron analogy.
0: So I love that. Should
1: we disturb? Should we disturb the bargaining that occurred? <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous, right? There's no there's no market for defendants to participate in. Um, and then you layer on top of that, I think the explosion in criminal legislation that we've seen. The sort of um, the cooperation between legislatures and prosecutors to enact all, to enact new laws, to enact overlapping laws, to make punishments harsher, and they do so. I mean, you can find you, you can find the statements in the legislative history. They lawmakers say they're doing it to help prosecutors. They want to make sure that prosecutors can get people to cooperate with them. It would be. It would be too much work if they had to prove their cases beyond a reasonable doubt. There was even, by the way, and I should say, like, this is a problem across the country. This isn't, oh, conservatives do this. I mean, Elizabeth Warren came out with an op-ed last year where she said, I'm introducing new legislation against white-collar crime where I'm going to change the mens rea from, um, you know, from knowing and intentional to reckless or negligence, I can't remember which, Um, And she said she was doing it because it was too hard for prosecutors to prove mental state. And she thought they'd only use it to go after the bad people who really meant to commit these crimes. But it was too hard for them to prove it. And so she was going to change the law. And, you know, I have a ton of respect for Elizabeth Warren. I think she's an outrageously smart person who makes important points in our public discourse. Um, She knows better. Yeah. I went to some of the faculty workshops when I was doing a fellowship at Harvard that she went to. She knows this is a problem, and yet she got elected to the Senate, and then it's like, yeah. oh, look, yep. do this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, her, her colleague, Bill Stunts was the one who like, brought this dynamic to like, national attention, and she treated it like a how-to.
0: So for, for, if there are any non-lawyers or lawyers who don't practice criminal law at all listening— let me give you my lay per- – I'm a lay person on these issues. So, uh, you know, so let, let me give you my perspective on what I think is happening, and you tell me how close this is to the truth. Or It seems t- – I know something about this in Georgia because a close friend of mine, Emmett Bondurant, who is a major Atlanta lawyer, um, argued a Supreme Court case at 26, Westbury versus Sims. He has been on this indigent defense kick his entire career. Um, and so I know something about this in Georgia. It feels like – A public defender has, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases at the same time. Um, A prosecutor has fewer cases. The prosecutor has all the bargaining power. And judges and prosecutors punish criminal defendants if they go to trial. So it's all stacked for innocent people, or maybe not innocent people, but at least people for whom the government couldn't prove their case, which in our system is the important thing. They have to plead guilty and they're coerced to doing it. Is that is that do I have that somewhat right?
1: So definitely um, the one wrinkle that I'll add is it's actually um, I think it's contested whether giving prosecutors lower caseloads actually makes them more likely to investigate cases and treat them seriously. There's some some good research out there that suggests when prosecutor, so there are definitely offices where prosecutors have very high caseloads. And it actually seems that maybe their plea bargaining practices might be worse when their caseload is too high. That makes but, sense. But everything else that you said, yeah. I I totally agree with. And it's um, and yeah, it totally results in innocent people pleading guilty because I mean, you can you can do the math on this, Eric, right? Like, <laughs> well, um, I probably can't, long,
0: but you can. Go ahead.
1: Well, I mean, like, <laughs> I'm not a law econ person, uh, <laughs> but when they use round numbers, I can sometimes understand what they're saying. So. Imagine that you are innocent of a crime. But the prosecutor thinks maybe you're guilty. And the crime carries a 10-year sentence. Okay. If you think that there's a 10 only a 10% chance that you might be convicted if you go to trial, if the prosecutor offers you less than a year, you should take that deal. It would be Irrational for yeah. you to not take that deal because you know a ten percent chance of ten years is a year. So like we can actually like do the math and figure out um, that innocent people, if they're given a good enough offer by the prosecution, actually should plead guilty. And then of course, layered on top of that is the fact that um, as I mentioned, a lot of the pretrial process that you see in civil cases, like automatic discovery, depositions, all of those sorts of things really don't exist in the criminal system. There are many, many states where you don't get discovery until the, you know, the couple of, of weeks leading up to a trial. And a lot of, you know, again, I've been doing interviews about this, a lot of prosecutors' offices will say the deal is X and it expires in three weeks and you wouldn't get your discovery for six months.
0: Can I ask about that? Because I, I didn't know, I didn't know this. I, I, can I ask about that? So, so I'm accused. I'm accused of um, uh, simple assault, you know, assault and battery. And there are two witnesses who claim they saw it. I, I say it's self defense. They say no, you attacked the person. <clears throat> in a civil suit, I get to, I get to depose the people who the witnesses. Are you saying that in a criminal case, I have no right in many states? to depose the witnesses? Oh,
1: so definitely yes. I mean, my understanding is Florida is the only state that gives criminal defendants a deposition, a right to a deposition. That's crazy! But but let's be clear, right? Um, Even if you had a right to a deposition, so let's say you were accused in Florida, Yeah. the prosecutor could say to you, your plea bargain is X. You're going to get that deal today. If you insist on deposing the witnesses, I'm going to take that plea bargain off the table. So they can require you to waive. I mean, I guess it's just I'm still personally trying to get my head around this constitutional logic. But I guess the Supreme Court's just kind of like, well, I mean, we already made you waive the right to a jury trial and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, I guess just throw the kitchen sink in there and just have them negotiate over other rights, too.
0: That is—I think you started off saying one of the myths of criminal justice is that there's justice. And and that's that's a great example of that. I mean—and also, even if I'm a criminal defendant with—as opposed to an overworked public defender who— let's say I have a sophisticated lawyer, I have some resources, and I really want to find out who is saying what about why I'm guilty. And the prosecutor uses plea bargaining to blackmail me or my lawyer out— out of even interviewing them, much less deposing them?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, and let's be clear, Eric, it gets worse than that, right? I mean...
0: How can it be worse it, than that?
1: <laughs> oh, can. Yeah. We don't have to get into the Michael Flynn case because I've... Because it's yeah. like... Yeah. It drives me insane.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but it's been widely reported, and you can see from the plea bargaining documents that, um, that DOJ, one of the things that they negotiated with Michael Flynn over was whether to charge his son... Right. That's permitted. It's permitted. Like, every once in a while, you get like a, you know, you get like a case out of the Seventh Circuit being like, well, we should monitor this. <laughs> we don't monitor it. Like, that's nonsense. Wow. We have to be careful that it becomes, doesn't become so strong that it's coercive. I mean, you've got kids. I've got kids. Even if my kid were innocent of a crime, somebody telling me that they would charge my kid if I didn't plead guilty, you know. I that just
0: seems kids. wrong. That just seems wrong on every yeah. level. There's no level... I'm, I'm no fan of Michael Flynn, I can tell you. But that just seems wrong. Now, I, I when that story broke, somebody on Twitter who seemed to have some knowledge of this stuff did suggest that his son may have been involved in the same crimes, and I yeah, think... yeah, okay,
1: yeah. No, that's right. Okay, That's right. Yes, of course. And But let's be clear. I'm not trying to say no, I know. Michael I, Flynn I, was innocent. Yeah. I'm not trying yeah. to say, like, oh, and thank goodness that DOJ is dismissing those charges. I'm not trying okay. to say any of the things. My point is... People were outraged by that, and yet it's hardly um, it's hardly a Flynn-specific tactic. Right. I mean, I can name other cases. I mean, the um, Martha the Martha Stewart case, right? The person who gave her the insider trading information, right? They got him to plead guilty by threatening to charge his daughter. I mean, among other things, too, right? Like the penalties associated with these crimes are super high.
0: That's crazy. So, crazy. Yeah, yeah. All right, I have another question about this, and I know this is going to be— This is the most—so far, you win the award for most depressing podcast. And and that follows Judge Dillard making a very formalist, legal realist case for judging, which, you know, (laughs) is not something I'm going to agree with. But yours is even more depressing. Um, No, I love Judge Dillard. Everyone knows that. Um, So now let's talk about race. And I—you know, this is going to—is all of this amplified— or made worse, or how much How much of a role does race play in this? I, I really don't know.
1: Yeah, no, so look, you're asking the right question. And, um, you know, I'd say it's complicated. Um, and like most complicated things, that doesn't translate very well to a public discussion. Um, the people who want to say that this isn't about race, they're they're wrong, like pretty definitively wrong. And they'll do things like point to the database of fatal police shootings to say that African Americans, you know, aren't over aren't overrepresented or might even be underrepresented in that database. But, um, but that's you know, that's that's one tiny statistic. Right. I mean, it's it's impossible to read about the criminal justice system and not come to the conclusion that. African Americans, um, by a long shot, and Hispanics also, to some degree, are treated worse than white people. Like, there's no, there's no way to get around that supposition. I mean, I was just reading the, the DOJ's Ferguson report, and it's—talk it's, about depressing. Yeah. I mean, they lay out all of the statistics, and you think to yourself, like, oh, well— you know, that's difficult, but, you know, race is also correlated with poverty, and then they follow that up with a section of the horribly racist things that the police officers and judges and county right. officials, you know, city officials, and for different saying. So, um, there race is definitely um, something to worry about, and it's something that we ought to care about, but it's not... It's not what explains this, right? Well, it's not—
0: That makes sense to me. And I'll tell you why, Carissa. That, that, again, as a layperson, that makes sense to me for this reason. My friend—again, my friend Emmett, who is an expert on engine defense, I think he would say—I I could be wrong, but I, I think some people would say that rural Georgia—I'm not talking about Savannah, but I'm talking about really rural Georgia, and what goes on there is as bad or worse than what goes on in Fulton County— Fulton County is going to be mostly African American. There's going to be mostly white, but it's still terrible there, and they railroad people there. And so, so, so although there are more people in the inner cities, maybe committing, it's it, it is deeper than race. I guess the, he would say it's deeper than race. And is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. So I'd say I'd say we have these huge problems in the system, and then we shouldn't be surprised that those systems end up disadvantaging. Poor people and people of color even right, more. Right. Um right. if you fixed it so that everyone was being disadvantaged equally, you'd still have a terrible, terrible system. Right. Um, so I don't know where that leaves us in terms of solutions. Um it makes me think that it's important to talk to people about the racial component of this, but I also think that um it's. it makes me think that that is one bad outcome of many, but not the root cause.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess I have one, maybe one last question about this, and then I'm going to ask you about your your, your project. Um, it, I, I've never met a criminal law professor, I don't think, who doesn't think there are major problems in our system caused in large part by coercive blackmailing plea bargaining. Like this is not one of those subjects where you get two sides. I mean, maybe there are, but I haven't met that person if they if they exist. I think even cons, you know, conservative law and order types say plea bargaining is a problem and and, and they tie it to how full our jails are compared to other countries. Is this something the Supreme Court could fix? I'm guessing no. This has to be done by politics, right?
1: I mean, that is a very difficult question. Um, I think the Supreme Court could certainly do more. Okay, Tell me, me have, how. Tell me how. Which is shockingly bad. So they don't have to give um, plea bargaining the pass that it's been given. They don't have to say, sure, make them waive all of these other procedural rights as well. They could certainly do that. Right. Um, I think... Uh, I think that they could do more with the Eighth Amendment than they have. I mean, basically, what the Supreme Court has said is, if it's not capital punishment, um, we're not going to inquire into whether it's excessive. You would think that a court that prides itself on being full of textualists—yeah, right—would think that that's the wrong way to read the Eighth <laughs> Amendment. Um, I'd also, and this is this is actually a project that Andy and I are working on. This is, you know, this is the. Um, professional hazard if you if you live with another law professor you end up talking about law all the time so he and I have written a number of papers together and we're actually working on a paper right now about textualism and criminal law Um, because it's become clear to me from some reading that I had done some not very sort of careful reading um, that the turn towards textualism uh, would have been viewed with sort of like horror and shock by early Americans and Andy, who's, you know, got like more of a history background than I do, and he's also just a much more careful and patient scholar, <laughs> um, he and I are working together. And, and sure enough, like judges at the founding and for many, many, many decades afterwards, did not think that judges were supposed to be hands-off players that only looked at whether the words in a statue um, a statute could could be plausibly construed in a way that would support a prosecution no, they were actually really active in pushing back against legislative excess and in pushing back against a a growing criminal code they they thought that was their job
0: so uh, Chris, I can really this this is one part of criminal law I can't support you on um, <laughs> so I, I have done an enormous amount of research on originalism in the founding, of course, because you know um and what I – what I, virtually all scholars that I found, including Dean Trainer at Georgetown, who has done a lot of work on what early judicial review was like, my take – my review of the history is they expected judges to do what Alexander Hamilton said about constitutional law. If there is an irre- irreconcilable variance between a statute and the Constitution, strike it down. Very deferential, and I've written a lot about that, except – with the exception – of cases involving judicial power directly, and almost all of those cases involve criminal cases involving jury rules and double... And there they wanted judges to play a very active role. So whenever I defend my judicial deference books and stuff, um, what I say is, but the exception here is the Fourth through the Eighth Amendments for a lot of complicated reasons, not just because of history, but history supports that. So I think I agree with you 100% about that. It would be nice if the supreme court could at least send some signals out there right to scare jurisdictions maybe we have to do this a little, just some signals would, would be would be new right
1: yeah i mean it's funny there were a couple of cases in the past sort of decade or so like united states versus bonds that like sort yeah. of chemical weapons case yes. the yes. Yates case involving the the fish um, and so it seemed as though there were maybe some justices who were getting really fed up with these incredibly broad laws that um, that no one actually thought should be enforced as written, and then sometimes they'd get enforced as written, and they're like, right. oh, darn it. <laughs> um, but then you see a case um, like the case out of Kansas where Kansas— essentially abolished the insanity defense. Sure. And in an opinion written by Justice Kagan, the court was like, "Well, I mean, it's hard to say what the founders would have thought." <laughs> and I'm like, "Look, it might be hard to say what precisely they thought was required, but it's not hard to say that they would have said this isn't okay." <laughs> so like, I don't know. Well, I
0: mean, the answer I mean, to that, I mean, sorry, but the answer to that is they don't care about originalism unless it supports their views, any and all of them. That's the answer to that.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think that Justice Kagan was like, this case should definitely come out for the state of Kansas. I think that, like, um, I think that the way these cases have built up over time, and I think shifting views about the judicial role in America probably played a role there. Like, I think, you know, I think Justice Kagan believes that judges have a particular, relatively modest role to play and that that affected her willingness to strike down not just a statute in one state, but it would have been a couple of other states too. But that's seen as a taboo and that's seen like um, something that they should avoid. Yeah. And I'm just sort of like, sh- should you? Isn't, yeah. <laughs> I mean-
0: and of course, Justice Breyer is no star when it comes to these kinds of issues. So he's often... Yeah. Gone with the um, let me ask you about the prosecutors and politics project. What is that? It sounds fascinating.
1: Yeah. So, um, so you know, it, it grew out of just sort of like me mouthing off on Twitter. Um,
0: <laughs> so much does. <laughs>
1: uh, seriously. <laughs> so, so I had a. There had been some news accounts of George Soros donating money and prosecutor elections. I was teaching a seminar i'm sure this happens to you too i had a student who couldn't come up with a seminar topic i suggested that among other topics and she did like a like an in-depth investigation into campaign contributions in a couple of counties here in north carolina and found some really interesting stuff and so i started pulling some more records to try to do this myself um and then the story broke about I'm actually not going to remember which story it is because he's had a couple of scandals about Cy Vance in Manhattan taking money. I don't remember if it was from Harvey Weinstein or if it was from the Trump organization, but right. taking money from their lawyers and then not bringing cases. And so I posted a bit saying, like, look, the, you know, the, the little research that I've done on this suggests that we should expect to see lots of lawyers contributing to these cases. So the fact that a lawyer contributed may not be a smoking gun. Anyway, so like I said, I was mouthing off about this. And somebody contacted me to say, how far along is your research? And I said, it's incredibly early days. Like, it's very time intensive. Um, and he was affiliated with a foundation that funds criminal justice research, among other things, and asked, how much did I think it would cost to do it faster? I threw out a number that seemed very large. And now that <laughs> I'm doing the project, it seems much smaller in retrospect. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's always the case, I think.
1: That's right, and that yeah. was the start of it. And that was, you know, since then we've we've pitched other projects to other funders. We're doing a doing a big project right now about prosecutors lobbying state legislatures for wow. certain legal changes and against reform. That's been fascinating. Gearing up for another project that'll hopefully survey voters about sort of criminal justice policy questions and then conduct semi structured interviews in um, in the press in their local prosecutor's office to see what the matchup is. So it's it's been really fun because you know prosecutors play such an important role in our criminal justice system, but we don't know much about them. And to the extent that we talk about to the extent that law professors talk about prosecutors, we're almost always talking about federal prosecutors and DOJ. And that's just I've come to realize. Such a skewed picture
0: of what yes. actually happens. So I used
1: and to it's run such a small
0: slice. I used to run the for many years. I ran the externship program at Georgia State, and we had externships with the federal public defender, of course, and the state public defenders, and they were different worlds. I mean, they, 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 there was nothing in common. The, the federal public defender's office had a fair amount of resources, incredible lawyers. The U.S. attorneys respected them. So when they got into plea bargaining, huffs or whatever, there was – I wouldn't say equal bargaining, but there was intellectually equal thing, um, whereas at the state level, it's just a disaster. Um, and so I hate it when people talk about our criminal justice system and bring in big city federal public defender's offices. I don't think – I agree with you. That's not representative at all. I have a serious question about your project. Um mm-hmm. And um, this requires a little bit of background, I guess. One of your colleagues uh, at Chapel Hill is Gene Nickel, who, is an old, who I, I've known. You know, we're both much older than you and known him for a long time. Former college football player, amazing human being, I think, in, in all math. And he had a fantastic center at Chapel Hill devoted to poverty, I think, and, and, and poverty issues. And you legisl- your meaning North Carolina's, legislature a lot of crap went down, right? And a lot of mm-hmm. denial of funding and threats and everything. If in your research you find out that North Carolina prosecutors are doing tawdry things, I'm not saying they are, but if you found out that they yeah. did and you published that, are you at all concerned this could come down heavy on you? Because it came down heavy on Gene.
1: Yeah. So, um, so look, I'm glad you asked that question. It's a hard question. I mean, you're you're at a public institution yeah. too. Yeah. Um, I'll, say if, I'll say a few things about it, but I don't, I don't want to talk out of turn because that happened before I got here. Sure. But I'll say this. The legislature, I think for many years, um, loved UNC Chapel Hill. Yeah. And, and by the way, as well they should. It's yes. an amazing school, right? Yes. First public university in the country. I'm constantly astounded by how smart my colleagues like Gene Knuckle are. are. Yeah. Um, really, really amazing people um the north carolina's legislature flipped i believe it was in 2010 yep. i believe it was part of the tea party movement yep and the attitude in the state house towards the university also flipped now th- there's an easy story to tell there about anti-intellectualism i'm sure you, you don't need me to tell it i will say that i think that there is another story that's that I, think, that I think academics need to come to grips with, which is we need to play a bigger role in our communities and we need to make clear why it's important to have public universities. And I should say, North Carolina, I mean, this is my third state university and the university in general and the law school in particular gets much more money in public funding from the legislature than either of the two schools that I was mm. at before. So. Right. Although there is this tension between the legislature and the university generally, and the law school in particular, um, they, do su- they do support us financially. Um, was Gene Nickel targeted? Yes. There is no doubt in my mind that he was targeted. The year after I moved here, the legislature, somebody introduced a budget cut um, into the law school budget where they cut half a million dollars from our budget, which is an enormous amount of our of our public financing. Um, and uh, and I believe the person who introduced it referred to it as the Gene Nickel Amendment. I so think like, that's right. There's no yeah. doubt about that. I think that's inappropriate. I mean, I don't think that that's what the legislature should be doing. Um, at the same time, the legis- folks in the legislature would tell you that, you know, the law school didn't do enough, um, you know, transactional work and that people on the faculty were out shooting their mouths off. And Gene Nickel has a column in the local paper where he... I'm gonna go with shoots his mouth off. Okay. <laughs> About politics within the state. Yeah. Um they can do it because they control the purse rings the purse strings, but I think it's a bad idea. Does that make me hesitant? Probably not, because I'm not that sensible of a person, I guess. <laughs> but I've also gotten all of this funding from outside of the law school. That helps. So that that really helps. Yeah. That helps a lot. It's not taxpayer. I mean,
0: it's, it's not. I remember reading. So I have two very close friends whose entire lives, they both went to Chapel Hill College, Chapel Hill Law School. The son went to Chapel Hill. They bleed blue. It's all Chapel Hill. Um, and so I followed the story closely. And, I, and I, I do think non-taxpayer dollars is different than taxpayer dollars. And,
1: and I should say Nick is continuing his work yeah it's not a center anymore because the legislature controlled yeah. board of governors yeah. brought enough pressure to bear that right. it's no longer a center which is right. which is again in my opinion not appropriate right. but he's continuing the work he gets external funding for it they do really important work it's um it's locally focused it's about poverty and the effect that that poverty has within the state right um you know, he's written two new books in the past three years. I don't know when that man sleeps. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's continuing to do the work. And I'd like to think that the reaction to what the Board of Governors did um, uh, would stop them from doing similar things in the future. But I, unfortunately, I don't feel particularly confident yeah. about that. You well, know? I feel
0: like this project is really important. And I hope they stay out of your way. And I hope you continue it. Because I know I have stories in Georgia that would, you know, and I'm sure it's true everywhere. So, um, by the way, just a little bit of gossip. I worked for Gene's wife um, at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher in the summer of 1982. Glenn, Glenn exactly. George. Yeah. Yeah. Small world. Oh,
1: that's fantastic. Yeah, she's like um she's you know, she's like a lawyer that like runs healthcare systems yes. now. Like, yes. that, that, yeah, that's 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 she's a very high powered lawyer. They're
0: quite a power couple. Anyway, um we are running out of time. And I do want to spend a little time and this is gonna be a little bit of inside baseball, but you know it's my it's my podcast, so I get to do that. Um Let's talk about legal scholarship for a minute. And and the reason I want to do so we're going to shift gears. And by the way, the conversation that Chris and I, I think we both agree on this, are about to have is a thousand times less important than the conversation we have been having about the lack of justice in our criminal justice system. I, I feel that way. Um, but, I
1: feel that way, too. Okay. At the same time, I find it fascinating, and I'm excited to talk to you about
0: it. <laughs> right. So this is for you and me. Listen, if, if you're not a lawyer, not a law professor, you can turn it off now because you're not going to like the next 15 minutes. Um, you and I were both at a symposium on, on Law Review Scholarship in Chicago. I alluded to that on Twitter. We, um, we had a nice discussion in a bar after a few drinks. Got a little out of hand, but we controlled ourselves. Um, so if you could change – and you and I have some disagreements here. But if you could change one thing about legal scholarship, you're God, you can change one thing tomorrow, what would you – How's that for a hard question. What would you change?
1: Ooh, that's a really hard question. Yeah, I know. Oh. Um, you know I don't know. You know what I think I might want to change? I might want to change – Um. I don't think that I would require peer review because I hear that there are all sorts of problems with that sort of system. But I would change the need to claim novelty in order to get sort of
0: That's a great Oh no, we're well. going to agree this is terrible.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah, I think
1: I think um I think I think there are incentives to overclaim about what you've done and what you're contributing, and that that um, that's a problem because that's you know that doesn't seem very honest, and we want to be yes. able to trust what people are saying in their articles. But I also think it might shape the sorts of papers that people write sometimes. I mean, I'm a big don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of the big abstracts, sure. like trying to shift people's right. thinking. Right? I I call them the insight article. Right. Like, right. I'm trying to I'm trying to get that started. So if you want to pick that up, thank you. I'd appreciate the that. The insight article. Beautiful. I like it. I like it. Um, but I think that um, we should only write those infrequently, right? Yep. Only after a while of doing the more mundane yes. task of really digging in and developing the expertise so that we, um, so that we know that our insight is actually, like, valuable, valuable. Yeah, so
0: I guess that's what I'd say. it's funny, and I, I actually didn't. I was hoping you would disagree, but we, on this point, we don't. Um, my my view on this is, in, in constitutional, I can't speak to other areas of law, but in constitutional law, non-criminal procedure, so in everything about free speech, equal protection, due process, you know, rights, and all that, separation of powers, federalism, everything about that, a truly original idea that's not stupid comes along almost never, and we should own that. And then when it comes along, we should grasp it, right, and say this, is a, this might be a game changer. We're not sure yet, but, um, you know, Chris, when I – my book Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court, was published in 2012. And when I was working on it in 2010 and 11, although it was a traditional legal realist type approach, no one had ever said before that the Supreme Court wasn't a real court. And when I went to talk to people about it, and this is before Twitter and before social media for me, and so I had a different reputation, um, some people were very encouraging, like Judge Posner. Other people were very discouraging. And I would say to the discouraging people, if you disagree, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay that you disagree with this. Is it stupid? Because I don't want to write something stupid because (laughs) no one has ever said this before, and I don't want to – I'm okay with – I'm even okay with that's probably not right. I just don't want it to be stupid, um, and and that's because that was after twenty years of being a law twenty years of being a law professor. That was my first truly original thing, and I just got lucky. You know, and frankly, if it wasn't Judge Posner, I wouldn't even come around it. So. I agree with you. I wish we could, ha- I wish we could recognize that if someone is, is, is taking the law and summarizing it in a good and readable way, right, presenting a good thesis to why the law is like this, even if it's borrowed from somebody else, but makes the next article easier, that's good, right? How I much don't. of this is the problem of student-run law reviews?
1: That's so hard to say. I mean, I think, you know, like you, I've dealt with different editors at different journals, and and it's uneven.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? Um I think sometimes um, sometimes the students actually are amazing and make the work a lot better. And sometimes, you know, I'm like, I don't think I need a footnote for that sentence. It's the topic <laughs> yes. sentence of <and> the paragraph. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you
0: know? yes. Yes.
1: Um I'll say too, and I, th- I think I'm gonna say something that you probably agree with. Um i feel lucky to have moved to a school like unc because i think that i get reads at schools that would have ignored what i'd written before i got here yep. um and that um perpetuates a system that uh, that's flawed it's not it's not rotten it's not horrible but it's flawed i mean like you mentioned i moved around to a bunch of different schools i feel, feel very lucky to have ended up at unc um i worked at schools with people who were fantastic amazing scholars who work at schools that just aren't as well known and so they don't get as much exposure as my colleagues at unc now, I, like i said it's flawed but not broken i mean i yeah. have more of those colleagues right. at unc it's a it's a you know it's a school where i'm like you know i'm Solidly, like a B.
0: <laughs> no, that's b. not true. Plus. That's not. Exactly that's that's not heard. true. That's not true. Um.
1: But um, but you see that, right? I mean, you can. Oh, I Georgia! Mean, b-
0: believe me, I, when I started at Georgia State in 1991, we 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 were nine years old, and didn't have any, I mean, whatever Georgia State's reputation is now, which I think is pretty solid for a good, you know, solid regional school, back then there was no reputation, and it absolutely hurt placements. Um, and we had several people come in years after me who, from other schools who actually had pretty long careers and, um, and they were even at schools less known. And they said there was even a difference going from like, you know, less known schools to Georgia state, much less Georgia state to Chapel Hill, much less Chapel Hill to Yale. I mean, it's, you know, it's right. Right. Yeah.
1: And. And I'm sure you would agree with this too. Sorry, we keep agreeing. I'm I'll about to raise last topic we're going to
0: disagree about, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> I'll make you something. I'll say something controversial soon. Um, I mean, I think on some level, right? If you if you look at the faculties at these schools, like as amazing as I think my colleagues at UNC are, you know, the the faculty at NYU, like on balance, is more impressive. But there are people at my school who are more impressive than some of the people at NYU, right? It's
0: not... Yeah, we disagree on that. I don't,
1: know. I, I don't that. know why I
0: keep, No, we disagree. Keep, 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 keep. I, I think there are plenty of people at your school more impressive than people at NYU.
1: No, no, I think that there are some.
0: I think um, there are a lot. To be honest. No, no, I, I say that for this reason, Carissa. I, I don't... I think... And by the way, I love NYU. I mean, I, th- I think it's a great law school. I'm, I'm co-writing a thing right now with Chris Sprigman at NYU, who I love and all that. But... I don't – when you say impressive, I see I, – to me – and this, th- this is the biggest problem in law schools th- today, I think. This idea uh, that, that the, p- the people at NYU will have more impressive resumes than the people at Chapel Hill. That doesn't so – I
1: not Im- suggest that. I meant to suggest – one of my colleagues put this really well. He's like, look, he's like, the thing with lateral hiring – You want to find people who are still writing and who are still writing good stuff at least five years after they already got tenure, Yes, People who are five years after tenure and who reliably are writing new stuff and pushing themselves, publishing regularly, and doing so where they're advancing the conversation and doing it in a way that is impressive to people. So I agree with you. That last bit can be complicated, though, because if the school that you're at affects where your articles get published. Right. That is almost certainly going to affect how like it is that someone's going to read it and their view about whether it's impressive. Again, Uh, why why am I still agreeing with you? Let's talk about op-eds. Well, I I have to
0: say one more thing about this, and then we're going to end talking about uh, blogs and stuff like that. Um, Actually, I I didn't make my point well. What I was trying to say was it may or may not be that law professors at NYU, Columbia, Harvard, Yale, and Chicago write better law review articles and books than law professors at Georgia State or Chapel Hill. That may or may not be true. But even if that's true, they're not better law professors. I mean, I will tell you that there are professors like Gene Nichol. Gene Nichol's career is one of public service, public speaking, I know he's a great teacher, whether he's published in the Harvard Law Review or not, I don't care. (laughs) Um, The whole package. Um, And so I think when you look at teaching and service and and being role models for your students, I, I don't think there's any relationship between the fact that you that, that you're an elite school or not. I, I think that's, that's all I was trying to say. Do you, you don't disagree? You don't disagree with that? Do you? I
1: don't. I don't disagree that there's more to being a law professor than just our scholarship. Yeah. Um, I definitely don't disagree with that. And teaching yeah. is a huge piece of it. The other piece of it, sort of the public facing piece of it, yeah. um, I, I still struggle with that. What it's supposed to look like. What it means to do it well,
0: right? Well, that's what I want to talk about now. So we're going to great segue. So we're going to talk about this right now. So you and I have disagreed um, in the past, civilly, um, on the importance of non traditional legal, non traditional things. Um, I blog for Dorf on Law, and I blog once every ten days, um, sometimes more. But but certainly, I've done over three hundred blog, four hundred blog posts in the last five years. Um, And in addition to helping me write my book, because I blog a lot about originalism, I know the things. But in addition to that, Carissa, I I have written a series of four or five blog posts on similar subjects about originalism that Mm -hmm. make a contribution. I'm not going to be overly modest here. Because the originalism blog is run by Mike Ramsey, who's a great guy and he likes me. He links to my work. So my work gets discussed by other origi- you know, by originalists, and it's all one big conversation. And so a woman at my law school named Charity Scott, who just retired, who started our health center and is, was an amazing law professor, used to say at P&T meetings, what we care about at Georgia State is not being published in a Harvard Law Review. I mean, we like that, but we don't. What we care about is you're engaging intellectually with people outside of the Georgia state, maybe even Georgia environment. My blog posts at Dorf and Law get read sometimes by 2,000 people. That's more than read my entire laureate, 45 law review articles. I don't think it, you know. So I think that should count. Like, I think blog posts done regularly should count as legal scholarship. And this is where you and I disagree. Make the, make the case that it shouldn't.
1: Yeah, so, oh my God, I'm going to be such a law professor and be like, well, I think it depends on what you mean count. (laughs) 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 I
0: mean, you are such a law professor. Is Andy such a law professor, too?
1: Sometimes, sometimes um, I, I joke with my students, my one Ls, that um, that like you need to learn to love iraq because the lawyers in your life will iraq you. We were seriously having a conversation with his parents one about what to have for dinner, and he's like, "Wait, I think the issue here is," and I was like, "This is amazing. We're going to for dinner choice." It was very successful, by the way. Some <laughs> dietary restrictions that were like not overlap. Anyway, um, it's funny. So, I think that. I think that blog posts serve a different purpose than traditional legal scholarship. I, you know, I blog, blog infrequently. Um, I think it's helpful to do it. I agree it reaches a broader audience. I think it reaches a different audience. And I guess I see I, I see blogging and, like, a law review article um, differently than... Um, You know, then like an op-ed or something like that. And I guess I'd say maybe I see them almost as like links in a chain. I think the blog post can come first. I'm always much more interested in reading people's blog posts when they're throwing out an idea than when they're sort of like, oh, read this article I just wrote, which is fine. I mean, I've done the read the article I just wrote post too. (laughs) But um, they're throwing out the idea, and they're throwing it out not, I mean, sometimes just because, like, they want to shoot their mouth off. By the way, I definitely fall into that category. Sometimes I just want to shoot my mouth
0: off. Me too. Me too.
1: Sometimes I want to get an idea out there because I want to engage with people about it because I'm still trying to figure out how that idea fits into the more formal project that I'm doing. And I think those are two different things, right? I think blog posts that are people shooting their mouths off, I don't think... Should count as legal scholarship. I think they should count as us just shooting our mouths off, which is fine. I yep. mean, a yep. lot of us took these jobs because we have a lot to say and love the sounds of our own voices.
0: Yes, that's why think... I'm doing this for some bizarre reason.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that um, I don't think that the blog posts that are throwing out the ideas um, are quite there yet, right? Because they haven't figured out how they all fit together, and they haven't backed it up and weaved the sort of woven have it woven the sort of bigger picture and i have to say i don't even think that you can get the good blog posts i bet you wouldn't even write those blog posts if you weren't trying to do the formal scholarship i think there's a relationship there that because you're doing the scholarship it makes the blog post better
0: see i'm not sure about that and let me give you an example um, I spent a lot of time talking about gender equality and the 14th Amendment because any reasonable person would know that in 1868 America, there is no argument that the 14th Amendment was meant to preserve women's equality. Right? Women couldn't vote. Women couldn't be lawyers. Uh, believe it or not, there were originalists like Chris Green, my friend, Elias Soman, a friend who disagreed with me on that. But that's not the point. When Ilya Soman, a very noted originalist, claimed that the same-sex marriage cases could come out in favor of same-sex marriage on an originalist basis, (laughs) which, of course, is nuts. Right. Of course, that's nuts. He and Oren Kerr, your field—you know, Oren is, what, the king of your field or one of the kings of your field? Um, They had to get back and forth on their blog posts that was as good and as comprehensive and as scholarly as you'd want my point, Carissa, is bad blog posts shouldn't count any more than bad law review articles should count. Good blog posts, especially a series of good blog posts. I want to tell my younger this is all – I'm a full professor, chair professor. You know, we're past the point of caring. But for our younger professors, I want to tell them, from in my opinion, you write three or four blog posts on a discrete issue that, that, that you're using to, to eventually write an article about or you're explaining something you wrote in three or four blog posts, you know, eight ten thousand 10,000 words combined. That's scholarship, it's not as much scholarship as a Law Review article. It's not as much scholarship as a – but it is scholarship that should go in the scholarship category, not the service category. But most schools, I think, still put it in the service category. And I think that's wrong. And that's – I'll give you the, the final say on that. But I, I think it should be scholarship.
1: Yeah, so um – um, I guess I'd put it this way. Um, If it's scholarship, then why do we get to pick and choose which one's count, Right? If if I'm pre-tenure and I write a bad law review article, that's part of my file. But what if I write some, like, not particularly thoughtful blog posts that I later realize weren't that good because they were just blog posts? I would hope that they wouldn't be counted against me to show that I'm not a careful enough or well-read enough scholar. I guess maybe that's that's what I see the difference as. If it if it counts, then it should all probably count. And I certainly don't want all of my blog posts. <laughs> even the ones, even the ones that are in my field, because I'm using the medium to test out an idea, I'm not using the medium as my, what I would think of as my contribution.
0: Right. Like, you said, like you said earlier about something, and you said it really well, this is complicated. So this, here's another reason why it's complicated. Um, a, a young law professor at Georgia State, now, of course, young law professor has all changed, given VAPs and PhDs and all that, but, but leaving that aside, um, it is hard for law professors at Georgia State or 150 other law schools to get their articles accepted at Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Columbia. Um, I think the way you do that is you connect with elite people sometimes, get invited to conferences, and then your work gets noticed, and all that, and that has, a, that has a, an effect. I think a blog post can push that—blog post, not one, a series— could push that ball down that hill. So if I'm a dean of a law school— I'm saying to my – this is not how my law school operates. I've been trying to convince them to do this for a long time. This counts as you're trying to push the scholarship ball down. It doesn't count like a Law Review article. But we know what you're trying to do here. You're trying to get other people in the field to pay attention to you. If I write a blog post about um, basketball, which I've done, (laughs) or a blog post of my mother passing away, which I've done, that shouldn't count. That's not scholarship. That's just me – but if I, had a, if I write five blog posts on originalism that then turns into an article in GW, which it did, I think that should. And, and the article is different than the blog post. I think that whole series should count. I take it – but I can't figure if you object to that or don't object to yeah. that. Yeah,
1: so, um, so I think it is good advice to tell your junior colleagues to try to get people to notice them and yeah. to notice their work and to know what their work says. I yeah. agree with all of that. And I even agree with the idea that schools should probably incentivize that. So, um, so I've often pushed the idea that in the year-end report that we mm. submit, um, faculty should be asked to explain what it is that they did to try to promote yeah. Yeah. an article that they published. Yeah. And you know, they're like dumb, re- like they're sort of you know it's a way to manipulate your colleagues to be like if we're asking the question the answer shouldn't be nothing <laughs> um right yeah and i've had this fight with my colleagues before where i've said you know the reason to write scholarship is so that other people will read it and that your ideas will have an impact um but i think that you can incentivize that sort of behavior and i and by the way i should say I also think that that behavior is already incentivized without saying your blog post is scholarship. I mean, look, I drove, I mean, God knows how much traffic to an article that I put up on SSRN with a provocative tweet about the common law um, that people are like, oh, my God. (laughs) I was very proud of that tweet. I wordsmithed it for a while. But the tweet isn't scholarship, the paper is scholarship. And then I was just clever about how I got people to at least read the abstract of the paper. And it's helped have more people cite the paper. But I think what we really want is we want to incentivize our colleagues to get people to read and engage with their work. And they can do that lots of different ways without us suddenly changing what it means for there to be a scholarship. I guess, I guess that's where I come down. Right? I think because we're probably
0: not as far apart as we thought we were that night in the bar. Um, it's funny you no, talk. But
1: the difference was you thought that it was like totally chill for people to like write off eds before they'd written the scholarship. And that's that right. And that I have serious <laughs> problems
0: with. We, I wish we had time for that, but, and we don't. Um, but, but one thing you did say about Twitter is interesting. So what I've learned from my Dorf on Law blogging is, and, my, and Mike, I think Mike agrees with this, my most read blog posts are usually connected to a really good tweet <laughs> that's kind of weird and and so that's my segue to thank you this has been great i would love to have you back and mostly you've written about twitter i would like to do a whole thing on twitter because i think it deserves it to be honest my career changed because of twitter i think your career has been helped yeah oh, definitely yeah um, i'd
1: love to come back if you want to have a couple of us back, we could do, like, a roundtable and then tell each other which of our tweets were, like, especially inappropriate. We
0: should do that. Krista, we're going to do that. I don't want, I, want, I don't want to end this, though, without mentioning full circle. The work you do on criminal justice is really important. We live in a really depressing world when it comes to criminal justice. We need people like you to, to open that up so people can see it. So thank you for doing that work because it's, it's real work, and, and it matters, and I, and I really appreciate it. I do.
1: Thanks. That's
0: very nice of you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, so, so, so um, good luck with the rest of COVID, however long that lasts. Um, as we said before, um, Andy Hessick is a federal courts guy, as am I, so our, our paths cross scholarship-wise sometimes. Um, our scholarship paths won't cross, but our Twitter paths do. <laughs> and that's very important. Thank you, Carissa. This has been great.
1: My pleasure.